2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also from Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So if you keep your Bibles open, that will be great. Um, Your lecturer, Peter Orr, has informed me I only have 20 minutes. Um, and I think it's because he likes coffee, and he wants to get the coffee early. Um, he did say that the students here really aren't that bright, so um, it can't, if, you go, if you go beyond 20 minutes, you're in trouble. Anyway, that's not true. He didn't say that, honestly. Yeah. Anyway, let's pray. Father, we pray that you would teach us from your most holy word, as you would build and continue to build in us your most, our most holy faith. Father, we give you thanks for this word, and we pray that we would hear and obey as we apply it in our ministries, in our lives, as we see ourselves in the light of the gospel, and as we see this world to the ends of the earth in light of this gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I don't know if any of you have been involved in marriage preparation. One of the books that I've been quite fascinated by that we've been handing out, my wife and I have been handing out fairly recently, is a Paul Tripp book. It's about 10 years old, and it's a brilliant title, and it's quite a a clever concept, I think, having been married for 20 years. The title is, What Did You Expect? And it really is, as the title suggests, um, you enter marriage full of excitement, full of aspiration, full of idealism, full of romance, full of expectation, and your expectations are here, up like up here. The little blurb in the back says, there's two broken people brought together with high expectation, only to find themselves disappointed. This book is about redeeming the realities of marriage. The book is entitled, What Did You Expect? 
No one has written the book yet in relation to ministry. At least I don't think they have. Maybe they have in Australia. Maybe it's indeed on your first year ministry course here at Moore College. What do you, what do you expect when it comes to ministry? You're probably full of aspiration, full of excitement. Your expectation as to what will happen down the line after you've all been commissioned, after you've all been released from Moore College. By the way, I pronounce it Moore. It's got two O's, not goose. Like, thank you, brother. Moore, more, some more. Moore, so I do apologize. Moore College. Once you've been released from Moore College and then unleashed onto the world, what are your expectations I'm sure you're thinking it's going to be a great life. There'll be little resistance to you. Everyone will like you. You'll be loved universally. You'll be noted across the universe, indeed. You'll be notable in your generation. You will have the ministry above ministries. No hassle, no difficulty, no pressure, no strain, no stress. It's going to be wonderful. Now, I hope that is your expectation. It certainly was mine 20, 25 years ago when I was thinking about ministry and heading towards ministry, really, really excited, full of it. But I think it's necessary, isn't it, to align our expectations with reality. That sounds like a very middle-aged thing, a very pessimistic thing to say. It's the kind of thing Peter Orr would say. <laughs> Out of middle-aged disillusionment, he has, used to have the body of an athlete. <laughs> but I think it's good, isn't it, for us, as we're being shaped for a lifetime of faithful gospel ministry, to have our hearts infused with a good shot of biblical reality. You'll know 1 Corinthians, you'll know 2 Corinthians, you know that there are four Corinthian letters, we have two of them. And as Al Mohler says in the deep South American drawl, the principal of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and we praise God that he's just preserved two of them for us instead of all four. You know that Corinth was the crazy city in which there was the crazy church. And of course, the city of Corinth was influenced by influence. Its status its values, but you would imagine that the culture would stay outside of the church. The way, about think, the way of thinking about life, reality, ultimate reality, God would stay well outside of the church, but actually it began to shape the church. And 1 Corinthians tells us what the gospel, as it infuses the life of the church, what that should look like. There wasn't an outright denial of the cross. They didn't say, no, Jesus did not die for our sins. Rather, they didn't apply that Jesus had died for our sins. Second Corinthians, as we've had First Corinthians, being the gospel in the life of the church and the life of the church in that city, Second Corinthians is the gospel in the life of the authentic gospel worker. What does the message that's proclaimed look like in the life of the one who's proclaiming it? What does the message, how on earth does the message shape the life, and the ministry. I guess that, like me, your temptations will be in the face of discouragement. 15, 20 years down the line, in the face of discouragement, you might just quietly give up. You'll not resign your post, because after all, you've got to put bread on the table. 
But somehow you'll disengage. You'll quietly give up. In the face of rejection, you will alter or reject the message that you're preaching because it gets you into too much hot water. In the face of trial, you might just lift your ball, leave the game, and walk off the park. 2 Corinthians helps us to see what life in gospel ministry will look like. Because what we have is the life of the gospel minister, Paul, the authentic apostolic gospel minister, led bare in this most personal of his letters. So three points. Number one, in ministry, Paul proclaims Christ. Number two, in dying, Paul brings life. Number three, in wasting away, Paul sees the unseen. So number one, in ministry, Paul proclaims Christ. This guy has come right across the world to tell us this. Come to Murray Theological College to tell us, what an insight. In ministry, Paul, wait for it, wait for it. Don't write it down because it's my intellectual property. In ministry, Paul proclaims Christ. That's what your work is. He is the content of your message. You know this, I trust. Do not be sidetracked. Do not get involved in other things. Do not get involved in other messages. Never use the pulpit for political ends. In ministry, proclaim Jesus Christ as Paul proclaimed Jesus Christ. See, our world prefers lack of definition. Our, our world prefers a kind of ambiguous, vague, vacuous spirituality. At least that's what I'm finding in the part of the West where I live. Nothing too definite. Don't give us a fixed and firm message that Jesus Christ is the only Savior, the only rescue, the only one who will bring hope. Don't give us anything too definite, too certain. Well, Paul addresses that kind of thing head on in these few verses. We don't have time to go into the background. At least Peter Orr has told us I don't have time to go into the background. But listen to what he says, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. I want you to note how gracious and kind and merciful God is. He's provided a way of salvation. He sent Jesus to save us from our sins, to die instead of us and for us. How grateful we ought to be, the mercy of God, for the gospel itself. But not only has it been so God, been so kind and gracious and generous and merciful, he's also given the world the means by which they may hear this message. And Paul says this as we top this chapter. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, what? We do not lose heart. We don't lose our way. We don't slacken a bit. We don't behave badly. In, in opposition, and in the midst of opposition, we don't relax our efforts. We don't lose heart because of the message, because of this ministry which comes as the, from the generous, merciful hand of the true and the living God. We do not lose heart in the midst of pressure, intense pressure. Have you read Second Corinthians chapter 1? I despair even of life. Life is what, what was he what was he saying? 
You might get stressed if the PowerPoint doesn't work. This was intense opposition to Paul's message, where there'd been success in Ephesus. Then we read later there'd been intense persecution. And he despairs what? Even of life itself? The temptation, of course, would be to to change, to alter, to tamper a bit. But he says, verse 2, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul, your message, preaching about Jesus, speaking about Jesus, it's getting into trouble. You'll end up in prison. It will cause you to despair even of life itself. So change it a bit. Soften it a bit. You know, Step back. Well, Jesus is just, well, a mere option amongst the pantheon of religious option. Verse 3, have a look. And even if our gospel is veiled, this message that is preached from the mercy of God, at the hand of the kind, gracious, merciful God, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. This thing doesn't work, Paul. It's not working. It isn't drawing a crowd. No persuasive rhetoric. First Corinthians, Paul reassures him, doesn't he? In chapter 2, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are. Thank you. You've been listening to Peter. He'll be impressed. It is veiled to those who are perishing. So we see the gospel in the life of the city of Corinth, the first Corinthians. But now we see the gospel in the life of the apostle, the preacher. And he understands the rejection. Verse 3. It is veiled to those who are perishing. Who causes this? But hang on, Paul, you've already said, verse 2, that it's clear, as clear as a bell. You've been absolutely sharp. You've been precise in your language. You've proclaimed Jesus Christ because you realize the mercy of God. What is wrong? It doesn't work. Paul says, no, hang on a second. Hang on a second. They're blinded. Verse 4, in their case, that is those who are perishing, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, just listen. So you've got small g. I don't know. You're probably following from the Greek, I guess. Small g here. In their case, the God of this world. See how limited Satan is. The God of this world, that's, that's all that he rules. That's all that he runs. But in contrast to the true and the living God, in, in whom, in Jesus, we can see. You see those contrasts? The God of this world. But then, the true and the living God, verse 4. And this localized God, will we call him, this limited God, verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing. So just in case you wonder why this message is not taking, well, here's the reason. It's spiritual. Verse 5, the content of the message. Paul is no self-publicist. Now, he's a bit defensive, of course, in 2 Corinthians as he opens himself up. But in verse 5, he tells us his message and 
the approach, the posture of himself as this message is proclaimed. The content of this message, what we proclaim is not ourselves, it's not Paul. It will not be you. You will not shape the content of your message. That's a bit hard for our ego, isn't it? It's Jesus. It's someone else. Glory to the someone else, not to me. That's a bit tough. What, at least a kind of a bit of an accolade? A bit of a round of applause? No, no. A bit, a, a, entirely Jesus. Entirely Jesus. As, verse 5, the content of the message, Jesus Christ as what? Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. See this contrast? Lord. Jesus is Lord. And I am a servant, a slave of who? Him? Well, as your servants. See, authentic, the authentic gospel ministry will always be concerned for the other. That's who can work out the authentic gospel. It will always be concerned for the other. First, Second Corinthians chapter 1, the first chapter, as Paul speaks about his own suffering and affliction. He keeps saying, whatever comfort I've received in the middle of it, it's for your sake. That's how you can work out whether you're an authentic gospel minister. How concerned are you for the other? Then verse 6. For God who said that light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's so much we could say about this, but just think he's speaking in creation terms. He uses that phrase, possibly from early Genesis, let light shine out of darkness. When he's considering gospel ministry, what are the terms and categories? Where is his mind? It's in creation. That very act of creation, light, Second Corinthians chapter 5, the new creation. He's preempting that, isn't he? So that's what we're about. I trust that's what you will be about when in 30 years' time I meet you on the streets of Newtown. How great and awesome is our ministry, God's work and our proclamation. So in ministry, Paul became Christ. Point two, in dying, Paul brings life. What shape would you say is ministry? Well, you'll probably say it's cross-shaped. It's cruciform. I just wonder, though, as we read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 onwards, might we expand a bit, flesh that out a bit? What shape is ministry? Well, we see it's gospel-shaped. Gospel speaking, the ministry, is gospel-shaped. What is the gospel? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3, 4, and 5. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised again. Those three hotties. Well, there are several more in that chapter, of course. But those ones are what's conveyed, the tradition that's been handed to him. He passes on to others that Christ died for our sins. So think death, resurrection. Death, resurrection. Verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This, unfortunately, has been, well, if you preached this before, in Northern Ireland, there's a, a bag tax. Do you know what a bag tax is? Every time you get a plastic bag from a supermarket, you have to pay 5p, which is about 20 Australian dollars. You have to pay 5p. <laughs> And it used to be that those bags, those utility carriers, were of absolutely no worth, which is 
the treasure of jar kind of thing. Or sorry, the treasure of the, 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 the jar clay. Clay jar. You see, that, that Paul wants those who read him, those who hear him, to understand he is of no worth. Absolutely no worth. A utility. It's just a bag, a plastic bag. Now it seems that plastic bags last longer. Those environmentalists among us will tell us the plastic bags will kind of outlast the product. So all illustrations in that direction have been completely ruined recently. <laughs> but you get the point. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You see that? Remember the shape of the gospel. Death, resurrection. Let's read these next few verses. We are afflicted in every way. Perplexed. Persecuted. Struck down. Always carrying around in the body the death of Jesus. What shape is gospel ministry? What shape is the gospel death? Then, resurrection. Listen to the rest of it. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying around in the body the death of Christ, so that the life of Jesus. Do you see the shape of the gospel? Death, then resurrection. Do you get the shape of gospel ministry? Death and resurrection. Verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Death is at work in us. What? Death is at work in you, Paul? Yeah, but life in you. So in dying, Paul brings life. Finally, very quickly, honestly, Dr. Orr. In wasting away, Paul sees the unseen. Verse 16. So we do not lose heart. To the world, that sounds like absolute nonsense. Asinine, nonsensical, doesn't it? Doesn't make any sense. You mean to say, Paul, that you're investing in something that is for others and that brings great hope for them, but you get the pain, the hassle, the affliction? Paul, you must be mad, slightly on the edge. Ah, but yes, Paul is a misogynistic, narcissistic, neurotic homophobe who's quite clearly a fundamentalist and who could do so with some therapy. As Saul, he fell off his horse on the road to Damascus, banged his head and imagined that he had met a risen saviour constructing a complete distortion in pharisaical legalese of the simple and loving message of Jesus of Nazareth. At least, that is, in summary, what the Church of Ireland's equivalent to Moore Theological College's Mark Thompson said over the course of a sermon series in our chapel. But secretly, you might, when no one is looking, believe him. You might not acknowledge that you believe him, but functionally, you do. You might cut corners and move into self-protection mode, You might just quietly give up and move into the more creative, helpful and productive things, even whilst wearing a dog collar. You might 
quite simply lose heart in the midst of suffering and hassle and frustration, in the midst of the slings and arrows of outrageous ministry. It's all a bit crazy, isn't it? But in the midst of all of this affliction, all of this pain, what does Paul say? In fact, what does he gaze upon intensely? Well, what can't be seen? The eternal, unseen, if it may be put like that. And what makes him so sure? Well, the receptacle is wasting away. But inwardly, there is daily renewal. It may not feel like that, but that is the reality. Because God is true to his word. He raised Jesus from the grave. It may not look like that. Frailty, tears, scars, the body looking worn out, yet eternal life with Christ because he is in Christ. Even all of the hassle of a lifetime's affliction for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God in the proclamation of this word to the ends of the earth is what? What is it? Well, it's a mere flash in comparison with eternity. The Christian life is an incredible tension, doesn't it? The now and the not yet. Christians live in this intersection or overlap between what is the pull of the here, this world, and the pull of heaven. Yet, Paul is putting it a little differently here, isn't he? It is not a tension. Rather, it is the reality of living on this side of it all. And what does it cause him to do? Well, to weigh his present trouble against the greatness of eternity. It gives perspective. This is Paul's pastoring of himself. And it makes sense, doesn't it? To live for the things that will be there when we die. To give of ourselves to the things that are eternal. God is eternal. His word is eternal. People are eternal. Our culture's obsession with prolonging and beautifying life, grasping comfort on the way and at every turn, runs opposite to this. So what do you expect in ministry? What do you think it will look like? The internal message, the external weakness, the unattractiveness, the feelings of supposed failure, as Paul felt them. But the eternal, the new creation realities, will they be real in your work and in your life as you think of yourself for the next 60 years of faithful gospel ministry? I pray that there will be. Let's pray now. Lord, we feel weak, but your word strengthens us. We feel unable for the task, but your word is sufficient, equipping us. We feel overwhelmed in our eventual ministries, our eventual work, but your word tells us that you're the loving, sovereign Lord who brings the dead to life, who gives light in the darkness and who extends his mercy to those who are undeserving. By your Holy Spirit, please write your words in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.